Now, I want to talk to you today about uh, the process that we've been walking through the New Testament, uh, and we're in Matthew chapter 9. Um, we're going to be in verses 1 through, uh, I think, 17 today. We'll see how far we get. And I, I have to start off, i got a couple of questions for you. Is God allowed to work in ways we don't like or agree with? Is God allowed to do that? Is it okay if he does not follow your particular wants and likes? Or is he just a cosmic vending machine, only bringing to you what you want or what you ask for? How about this one? Is God allowed to redeem the people in our lives that we view as worthless? Whether they hold a view you don't like, or they're on the opposite side of the political spectrum, whatever it is. Is God, to, is God allowed to redeem and use those people? Today we're going to look at two sections of scripture that deal with that and some of the controversy that Jesus walked into during his time on earth in his ministry and how he handled it. And I, I hope it shows us something profound. We're going to start in chapter 9, verse 1. And it says, so he got into a boat, crossed over and came to his own city. And then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And at once the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil is, uh, why do you think evil is in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed immediately. He just got up, started walking. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had, who had given such power to men. So a couple things to note about this passage. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you might be familiar with this particular passage when the friends bring their, uh, the, they bring their buddy to Jesus. Uh, that, but there's something missing in some, in some of the accounts. You notice anything that's missing from this account that you find in other Gospels? The roof, exactly. In the other, in the other two Gospels where you, where you find it, the friends open up the roof and lower him down in front of Jesus. It's actually not in Matthew's Gospel. And that bugs some people. And I thought I would take a minute and kind of explain why this happens. This is one of the places where people will say, see, this is why you can't trust the gospel because they don't all, don't all agree. See, they leave stuff out, they add stuff. It's, it's horrible that people would put their faith in a book so flawed. Okay, which gospel are we reading? Matthew. Okay, I just wanted to make sure that I was understanding Matthew. Um, now, in this particular section of scripture, if you've read ahead, how many of you know what happens, which disciple gets called after this event? Matthew. He wasn't there. He didn't see it. So why would he remember all the details? The information he got on this account was secondhand. He was told it by the other disciples. Now, if you're one of the other disciples and you're talking about this particular event, which one is, what are you going to be more impressed with? The paralytic getting up or the hole in the roof? <laughs> it's a valid point. That's a valid point. Uh, Matthew was not an insurance actuary, so that's, that, that actually works out really well. Um, 
And the taxes on the house went down from the destruction, so he was pretty happy with it. Um, so, so when we're talking about the gospel, when we're talking about the reliability of the gospel, one of the very interesting things that we know, because the Bible tells us, is that scripture is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But the inspiration of the Holy Spirit does not mean that the writers of the, of the Bible were possessed. And like they, they, they couldn't do, all of a sudden they blacked out and they were just, I will write the scripture. That's not how this works. It was written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means the personalities of the writers are, are, are present in the writing. And that's so important for us to understand because that's why different books have different flavors. Different books have different emphasis. Different gospels emphasize things in different ways. So to give you an idea, Matthew is very direct, but he's not very detailed. Luke is very detailed, but he's not very direct. Mark is really short and focused, and John is more of a subject matter issue. They all have very different applications of the gospel, but they all land at the same place, Calvary. The goal of the four Gospels is not to tell one story in four exact duplicate ways. That makes you believe it's made up. If you ever get two kids who are in trouble and you separate them and you ask them what happened, you should get two different stories. If you get two exact same stories, you know they rehearsed the story (laughs) so that they would both have the same story. This is one of the ways that police officers can find the truth in something. When you pull people, when something happens and you, you get witnesses in different rooms, you start asking them the same question and they all give you exactly verbatim the same answer, you know it's a lie. So when you read the Gospels, when you read the Bible and you see the personality of the writers coming through in the text, that should give us an understanding that this is not just simply made up. These are eyewitness testimonies And they're giving you the best illustration that they can of the events of the life of Christ. So it's important for us to understand that. So when people challenge that, don't let it put you off. Get comfortable with it. You know, the gospels say different things in different ways. Of course they do. And you can even help them out. You know that some things are even in the wrong order in different gospels? Why? It's because that's how they recalled it. There's nothing wrong with that. So we can find a lot of strength in the gospel in its variation if we just simply understand how it got there. All right, so let's go to the, to the next part. Was Jesus more concerned with the limited physical exist, existence of the paralytic or the eternal spiritual life of the paralytic? The spiritual life. Now let's bring that up to today. Is Jesus more concerned... With your limited physical existence, or is he more concerned with your eternal spiritual existence? The eternal spiritual existence. And that helps us answer a few questions. So let me read to you 1 Timothy 4, 7. 7 through 11. It says, But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself towards godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little. This is a mantra for my life. I just want to point this out. But godliness is profitable for all things, having promise in the life that, is now, uh, that now is and of that which is to come. That part's important, of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe 
these things command and teach. See how important that is? Paul's saying, look, you can exercise, you, you can get yourself fit, that's great. Fit people still die. But are you ready to move on? One of the things that puzzles people about this passage in Matthew is that Jesus forgave the man, but it seems like he was willing to leave him on the mat. Like, his friends brought him in on a mat, his friends were going to take him out on a mat, but hey, your sins are forgiven. It gives you the idea that that was Jesus' plan. Now, I, wanna, I, I can't say this is absolutely what was going to happen, but based on what's going on in this particular situation, I have the idea that Jesus fully planned on healing this person, but he was going to do it in a very specific way to make a point. See, healing was not new. Jesus had healed other people. Miracles were not necessarily a new thing. What was happening was the, the difference here was the way he did it. Okay? So you think about this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Actually, wait a minute. Let me backtrack just for a second because I realize I left out an important part here. If Jesus had not healed that man, would it have been wrong? If Jesus is standing over this man who's a paralytic and his friend went through all that trouble to get him in front of Jesus and he didn't heal him, would Jesus have been wrong to do that? See, in our modern sensibilities, we would say, of course he would be. He had the ability he should have. But we come back to that same statement. Physical well-being is something that we all want, especially as we get a little older. You know, when you start getting out of bed and you sound like a bowl of Rice Krispies, in case you don't understand those commercials, a snap, crackle, and pop. But here's something else that I've also learned from, I will say, more senior Christians. They're less concerned about their physical body. And they become more concerned about the spiritual well-being, especially of the people around them. And you start asking questions like this, am I ready to move on from this life? Because we all move on. We leave this world for the next. And there is a natural degree of fear that is associated with that move. When people say, I have no fear in death. Fear is the absence of faith. Yeah, okay, whatever. That's a great soundbite. But there's a reality there that we need to come, in, that we need to come face to face, face with. Fear is not the absence of faith. Sometimes fear is simply intelligence. If I'm standing out in the desert on the Serengeti and a large lion is running toward me, fear is not the absence of faith. Fear is simply an awareness of my situation. Because these legs don't move fast. And they never have. <laughs> okay. Sometimes we just have to take in the reality of the situation and understand that fear is necessarily, is, is necessarily part of it. But faith in Christ mitigates that fear when it comes to leaving this life for the next. We have a hope that does not exist in people that do not know Christ. Because when we step out of this body and into the body that's to come, because we're told we will get a new body, praise God, I hope mine is tall, has hair. 
The reality of Christ takes the fear out of that journey. Forgiveness of sin is the goal. Everything else is a bonus. If Jesus heals you on this side of eternity, it's a bonus. If Jesus blesses you on this side of eternity, it's a bonus. If we can learn to find peace in that reality, then there's actually nothing that the enemy can throw at you that will ever lead you away from Christ. But I've known plenty of people who have never actually found peace with that reality, and when trouble comes looking for them, because it does, that trouble makes them turn away from God because in their mind, they're thinking, obviously, because I'm still in trouble, God's not the answer, so I need to go find the answer somewhere else. Anyone ever been in that position? I prayed God didn't help me, so obviously I need to go to the world, and that's fine. I guess that's just my answers are going to have to come from the world now. And that doesn't mean that God did not answer you. It might just simply mean that God is taking you in a different direction to bring his will where you would not have brought it otherwise. So let me give you a couple different examples. Let's say you're broke. You lost your job. The last thing you want to do is go back to the industry that you had left. Maybe you built up a career somewhere, you left it, you do not want to go back, but your ability to make money ended, and an offer comes up for you to go back to that industry. You're thinking, dear Lord, anything but that. But that's your last option. Obviously, God is not going to provide for me. Obviously, God doesn't care for me. So you know what? I'm going to go back to the world where I was before, and that's where I'm going to get my provision from. And then you get there, and what you find out is that people are curious about where you were. They want to know why you left. They want to know about your life, and you have the opportunity to speak Christ into, into lives you would have never otherwise touched. But you see, you're angry with God because God did not answer your request. And now are you ready to speak Christ into, the, into those lives? Or have you embittered yourself because you think that God had to answer your request the way you wanted it answered? God is not required to answer your requests the way you want them answered. His authority does not need your approval. Can I say that again? Jesus's authority does not need your approval. What it requires is our obedience. So if you're praying, God, I need provision in my life. God, I need you to, I need you to do something in this. And God opens a door and you're like, not that door. It, sometimes it sounds like this. Lord, I will serve you anywhere except Africa. Oh, Really? Tanzania it is. There you go. Enjoy the mosquitoes. So I started praying things like this. Lord, I'll serve you anywhere except Florida. God, don't send me anywhere where I can golf year-round, where it's sunny. And then I realized I should start praying a little differently because there's alligators there, and they move fast too. The other example comes back to what we're talking about here. Healing. Healing. We fight for healing. We pray, 
And we want God to answer a specific way. Why doesn't God just, listen, why doesn't God just do what I'm asking him to do? Well, maybe that there's something more important that you need to do along the journey. Maybe God's trying to break something in you, and this is the tool that he's decided to use. Now, let me answer a quick question because this comes up a lot. Did God make me sick? No. Was this disease, was this, was this cancer God's plan? No. Did God make this happen? No. God is not going to inflict you to get your attention, but he will use your afflictions. This world is broken enough. He doesn't need to get involved. It says he will work all things out for the good of those who love him. Now, will he put obstacles in your way? Sure. Cancer is not an obstacle that God's going to put in your way. Physical maladies are not an obstacle God's going to put in your way. That doesn't happen. We get cancer because we're in a broken world and we have broken bodies, period. That's how that stuff happens. We get injured usually because we're doing something stupid, right? The, 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 the last thing said typically before an emergency room ride is watch this. If you're not in the church, hold my beer. However you want to say it. You guys all know what I'm talking about. That doesn't mean that God's not there, but sometimes God's going to give you a no when you pray for your healing because there's something he wants to accomplish either in you or through you through that illness. Now you've got to ask yourself a question. Are you going to allow the journey to bring you closer to God or are you going to leave, allow the bitterness of the illness to bring you away from God? See the difference? The difference is in how we look at it. One of them is a choice that we have to make. But in this, I think Jesus had a bigger plan. I think Jesus planned on healing this guy the whole time. And the reason why I say that is because he knew where he was. He knew where he was. He knew the people that were around him. He knew that there were scribes there. He knew there were people who were listening to every word that he said. And he knew full on that when he said, don't worry, your sins are forgiven, he was going to get serious pushback for that. Because in the entire Jewish nation, that was one thing and one thing only, blasphemy. To say that you could forgive sin was the bridge too far for, for, for the Jewish nation. Priests wouldn't do that. They would say, have you made your offerings? And that's how you get forgiven. Jesus is saying, don't worry, buddy, your sins are forgiven. And he knew full well that the priests, were, the priests and the scribes were going to lose their mind in this process. And I think that was the point. Rather than, for, rather than healing him and then telling him his sins are forgiven, he heals him, sets up a situation, and then he says, I think, one of the most amazing things. He says, I know what you're thinking because there's evil in your heart, but so that you know without question that the Son of Man has the ability to forgive sin, get up and walk. That is fantastic. There is so much authority in that. That should have, without any hesitation, removed all doubt from anyone who was wondering who this guy was. 
I mean, can you imagine? You're, you're there. You've never seen these things happen before. These types of miracles hadn't been present in Israel for a couple of hundred years. Now, all of a sudden, on comes Jesus, and he says, just so that you know that I have the ability to forgive sin, which in the mind of the Pharisees and the Jewish people should have let him them know that what he was saying right there was, I am the Son of God, your Messiah, come to forgive your sins. They didn't catch it. He says, just so that you know without any question, be healed. I mean, that's, that's unbelievable. And now, what did it do? What did that miracle do in the eyes of the people watching who were, who were the religious leaders? It made them more determined to get rid of Jesus. They hated him more for that miracle. What should have brought them over to his side made them more resistant. And you've got to ask the question, why? Why were they so resistant to God? And I think the answer is really simple. Human beings, when we have an idea of what God is and what God isn't and what God will do and what God will not do, when God moves in a way that we don't agree with, we declare it not God. And the Jews had an idea of who the Messiah was going to be. They had an idea of what the, how the Messiah was going to come, the type of person he would be, the kind of leader he was going to be, the kind of miracles he was going to do, and Jesus was nothing like what they had believed. And so obviously, he couldn't have been the Messiah because he didn't fit into my description of the Messiah. What stubborn, arrogant people they are. are we, aren't we glad that we do not have those views today? Especially in the church, in the modern day church. We don't have views that we're so rock solid on that we have no ability, God has no ability to move in any other direction except the direction that we have set for him. May God follow in the footsteps that I have laid for him. Here's a question for you, and then we're going to move on. Are you looking for a Jesus that fits your description of who and what he is? Or are you looking for a Jesus as he is, knowing full well that he will be different from what you imagine? Are you looking for a life, a Christian life, that is exactly what you think it is because you watched it on TBN? You want the same Christian life that you saw from other people because that's what you've asked God for. And if God doesn't deliver that, then, then I don't know, God must not be real. God has to provide for me as I see fit in order for, in order for him to earn my devotion. Or are we simply seeking God as he is and accepting what he brings and living according to his terms regardless of what they are? One is us dying to self and living to Christ. And the other side is God dying for us and living according to us, according to our will, according to our ways. And I hear people say this all the time. Well, the Bible says just ask and he will, he will give. Read the rest of it. Ask according to his will. According to... His will, not yours. Are we willing to lay ourselves down 
and just follow in the footsteps of Christ. The Jews of this day, the religious leaders of this day would not. Every time Jesus would do something amazing, they hated him more because he was not who they wanted the Messiah to be. Today, we have people all through the church who constantly degrade and berate Bible-believing Christians who follow biblical morality, biblical sexuality, biblical uh, um, uh, 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 rules for family, marriage, raising children, the relationship between husband and wife. If you're a, if you're a Bible-believing Christian and you're living according to what the Bible teaches on these topics, you are now the oddball. And there are people in the church berating you because they imagine a God that's different. They don't want the God of the Bible. They want the God of modern society. And we speak badly about the people in the Old, in the old and New Testament because of how silly they were and how they didn't recognize what God was doing. They didn't recognize the standards of God. They didn't put themselves into the hands of God. They didn't do what God wanted them to do. And then we turn around and we do the exact same thing today. The Bible says thou shalt not be a drunkard. Except on holiday weekends. God said we should refrain from sexual immorality. Unless we like the movie. Or if it's one of our relatives. Hello? We shall not accept these things. That doesn't mean you throw people out of your homes. That's not not what the scripture is even saying. You can love someone and completely disagree with everything their life stands for. I think I said this last, last week. Alistair Begg, this is a great quote. He says the, the, uh, um, uh, the homosexual and the trans community believes that we either affirm them for who they are or we hate them. And he says, but because of the word of God, we do neither. We cannot affirm them because of the word of God, and we will not hate them because of the word of God. We love them and want to show them something different which is the same level of grace and the same level of acceptance and the same level of love that we would show a murderer, that we would show a thief, that we would show an adulterer, that we would show an alcoholic, we would show a drug addict. It's the same grace that we would show anyone in those situations. But society and so much of the church has decided that God is wrong on these topics. They've become modern-day Pharisees. God does not fit their view, so they kick out the God of the Bible, and they bring in a God of their own making. And people in a church raise their hand and go, hallelujah. Can't do that. Can't do that. Let's move on. From verse 9 through 13, it reads like this. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house uh, that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and the disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to the disciples, why does your teachers eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because they're better cooks than you. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I did not call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Tax collectors were among the most hated people in Israel, mostly because they were viewed as traitors to their own people. 
You're a traitor to your kind. Okay. They collected the taxes for the Romans, and they would usually overtax their people so they could keep the extra for themselves. The Romans wanted X, they would tax you Y, and they would keep the difference. So they were very wealthy. They figured this thing out. The Romans didn't care. They knew that the tax collectors were doing this. They didn't care because it kept... Now, listen to this carefully, please. The, Ro- the, the rulers did not care that that was happening because when the population was fighting itself, they were easy to control. Can, can, I, can I just say that one more time just so it sinks in? The government at the time, the Romans, didn't care that this was happening because they knew that a population at war with itself is really easy to control. No one wanted to be seen associated with with a tax collector. Most of the time, most of the people of of that day would agree that the best thing that a Jewish tax collector could do is end their own life for the shame of who they were. That's how much they were hated. But Jesus had a different way of seeing things. The Pharisees asked Jesus why he would eat with tax collectors and sinners, and his answer was beautiful. I came for the sick, not the healthy. Take a moment and think of anyone who you would describe as a waste of skin. Why would life would just be easier if that person was never even born? If I could snap my fingers and they could disappear, everything would just be so much better. See, it wasn't that you just, you just didn't like them. It was someone no one liked or everyone that you knew didn't like that person. When Jesus looks at that person, he does not see who they are. He sees who they could be. And thank God for that. And this is hard for us to understand sometimes because when we have a dislike for someone, there is usually either an emotional or a moral issue that we need to get past, sometimes both. You don't just wake up one morning and be like, I don't like you. Well, I mean, it kind of depends. It depends on how long you've been married, really. It's just, yep. And whether or not you snore. Think about this. When you think about the incredible amount of hate and disdain that the pro-choice movement has towards the pro-life side, an unbelievable amount of hatred, that hate is grounded in an emotional and moral argument, isn't it? You see, they say things like, you're a horrible person and you hate women. And it's usually a woman yelling at a woman saying that. You hate women. Of course, no one knows what a woman is today, so it doesn't matter. One of my favorite little things on on YouTube is the spelling bee. And the guy, the little boy up there, and the guy goes, your word is woman. He goes, can I have the definition, please? And the judge goes, "Uh, no. (laughs) Yeah, the silliness of our world today. Anyway, moving right along before I take a tangent. Now, you think about this. None of the people on either side know the other people. They don't know them personally. They don't know their family life. They don't know their values. They don't know where they came from. They just simply decided to hate them because of this issue. 
And there's almost nothing that you could do or say that's going to bridge that divide. It's just unbridled hate. Now, what would happen if all of a sudden Jesus gets a hold of the CEO of Planned Parenthood and they become a Christian? Are they allowed to step out of where they were and into the church and speak about what God has done in their life? Are they, allow- are they allowed at that point, an organization that since, I think, 1980 has killed over a billion children globally, talking about the abortion industry, are they allowed to step out of that and then be a good person and be thought well of? Jesus thinks they are because he stepped out of heaven and died for them. The person you dislike the most, Jesus still died for. And the person you think is the most useless is someone that Jesus can get a hold of and use in mighty ways to move his kingdom forward. Look at the way that God speaks to the prophet Samuel when he's looking for the next king. Samuel goes to the house of Jesse, and he's looking at his kids, and he sees the first son. The son's tall, dark, and handsome, and he's like, this has got to be the king. This guy's amazing. Look at him. And God goes, "Hmm, nope. I want the little scrawny one with the slingshot. God says this, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Exactly. Thank God we're not viewed by our outward appearance or our outward skill sets. He sees our possibilities if we would just submit. I've known a lot of people over the years who get frustrated with God because they're talented people. They have an understanding. I don't know why God doesn't use me in a more significant way. Look how talented I am. Look at all the instruments I play. Look how well I sing. I don't understand why God doesn't use me in a, bitter, in, in a, in a more significant way. I would do great in the service of God if God would just allow it. That's probably why you're not being used. Because there's something wrong. There's a heart condition that God needs to get a hold of. God's not looking for a beautiful sculpture. God is looking for clay. You hear what I'm saying? God's not looking for a beautiful sculpture. God is looking for clay. I want to show you something. This is a picture of a piece of wood I found in a burn barrel at my lumber supplier. Most of you know I make, I make guitars um, uh, uh, on, the, on the side. It's just a hobby of mine. I've been doing it for a few years now. And... Um, I was walking through my wood supplier and I found this piece of wood and it was, it was literally in the, in the, in the container to be burned because it, it was, it's got this big bark inclusion in it. There's, it's really not big enough to be used for much of anything. And I was like, so what are you going to do with that? He goes, oh, this is our burn barrel. And I was like, can I, can I have that? He's like, what were you going to do with that? So I got an idea. So I took it home, spent a little time with it, started looking, sizing it up, figuring out what I wanted to do. If you have some vision and you can look past what is to what could be, you can create some pretty, pretty things. It took a year or so for that to to happen because I had to spend, it wasn't a piece of wood that I could just use. 
I had to stabilize the wood. I had to make the wood usable for what I needed. I needed to, to firm it up. There's actually ways of doing that. I needed to make the wood stronger. That took some time. And then finally, when the wood was ready, I was able to use it in what I think is actually a pretty attractive way. So who in your life has convinced you that the only thing you're good for is the burn barrel? Maybe it was something you did in high school. Maybe it was something you did in college. Maybe it's something you did earlier on in your career. Maybe you're just a bratty little kid. And everyone in the neighborhood remembers you're just a bratty little kid. So who is it that has convinced you in whatever way that you are perfect for the burn barrel? You are a tax collector among the people of God. That's who you are. You hear that? But God says, I'm not concerned with who you are. What I want you to have faith in is what I can do in you, what I can turn you into. I mean, God's not a miracle worker. I will never be a basketball player, right? Closest I get to basketball is horse, and I usually uh, lose, (laughs) okay? God knew who Matthew could be, and Jesus gave him a chance. He also knows who you could be, and he continues to offer you chances. The question is, are you going to submit yourself to him? Those chances come in all kinds of ways. Some of the chances, believe it or not, that you end up getting is teaching back there in kids' church that so many people turn down, and they don't understand the blessing that comes with training the next generation. I love it when I hear things like this from parents. I would get back there, boy, oh, my kids are a handful. Okay, so let me think about this for a second. How about you get back there and, and, and spend time with your kids learning how to teach them? It's strange, but, you know, it works. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17 says this, and we're going we're gonna to end for today. It says, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, meaning your physical body, Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Here's a problem that I see in the church so often. You believe you're a new creation, but you never spend time figuring out what that new creation is. You believe you're something new, but you live with the mindset of who you used to be. I've never been successful, so I will never be successful. I've never been able to share my faith, so I'll never share my faith. I've never been able to lead someone to the Lord, so I'll never lead somebody to the Lord. I've never been good on stage, therefore I'll never be good on stage. I've never played an instrument, therefore I'll never play an instrument. I've never been able to sing, therefore I'll never sing. I've never connected with worship, therefore I will worship with my hands in my pockets, listening to the nice music. We stay who we are because we don't have faith enough in Christ to lead us to who we could be. Matthew left a lucrative job to follow Jesus into the desert and wander around 
wander around Israel for the rest of his life. There's something majestic about that. Is God allowed to make you into something that you would have never considered becoming, or is he only limited to your ideas? And is God allowed to do that for the person you like the least? I hope the answer to both of those is a yes. The world needs you. It doesn't need me. It needs you. And it needs all of you. I have the ability to reach a few people. You have the ability to reach a few people. And all of us together have the ability to reach a massive amount of people. If you would just have faith in who Jesus knows you can be. Amen.